Exodus 28, 1 through 12. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Inthamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to considerate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twine linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave them on the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod of stones of resemblance of the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. This is the word of the Lord. But what should I wear? You ever ask that question? Uh, it's one my children are asking every day of their lives, but never out loud. Uh, I have no idea where this came from, honestly, but they are obsessed with having the perfect outfit for the occasion, no matter what the occasion. I wait for them to get dressed in their full Little League uniform just so we can hit wiffle ball in the park across the street. Uh, they wear full soccer uniforms, shin guards included, just when we go to watch the Timbers play. Uh, recently, one of their six-year-old friends stood in the kitchen with Kirsten and I waiting for them to get dressed to play a sport with them, and he said to us, don't tell me they do this every time. <laughs> a six-year-old. <laughs> Most recently, Simon had a full-blown meltdown a week ago today because we were going mini-golfing, and he could not decide which collared shirt would make him look most like a golfer. And so he fell down weeping in his room on the way to putt-putt. <laughs> what should I wear? It's a question that adults ask typically whenever they're invited to a formal gathering that includes a dress code. Business casual, cocktail attire, dinnerware. There are no common definitions of what that means. Whenever a dress code is offered, it only produces more anxiety about what the dress code actually is. Uh, in my life, I've lived a lot of different places, and so I can say with confidence that cocktail attire means different things to different people. It is like a suit from GQ in New York City. It is pink socks and boat shoes in Nashville, and it is a black t-shirt with black pants and a scowl in Portland. <laughs> It 
It has been a while. I do want to say that I've missed all of you. I hope you've been having as good a summer as I have. I, I would have stayed gone longer. I was having a fantastic time away until I heard that Gavin Bennett was up in here gunning for my job. <laughs> right? I mean, you think you know a guy. And then he just brings a teaching like that when you're trying to relax. Obviously, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm really, really grateful for all of the voices that have and will continue to speak into this teaching series. So we're midway through a summer teaching series covering the narrative arc of the Bible's second book, Exodus. And the theologian T. Wright says there are two liberation journeys in Exodus. The first is how to get Israel out of slavery, and the second is how to get slavery out of Israel. So Act 1 is all about how to get free. Act 2 is all about how to live free. And Act 1 springs forth from a divine encounter. Moses hears God speaking to him from a burning bush. And Act 2 springs forth from a divine encounter. Moses hears God speaking to him from a cloud that descends on Mount Sinai. We are now officially in Act 2, friends. And Exodus 28, where Paisley read just a moment ago from our teaching text, is one of the longest chapters in the whole of the Exodus scroll. And it's one of just three chapters that are devoted entirely to the priest's ordination ceremony, uh, to their responsibilities, and most prominently to the priest's clothing. It is one of those parts of the Bible where your Bible in a year ambitions tend to grind to a halt. Just a moment ago, God was sending plagues and freeing captives and parting seas, and now he's throwing a costume party. What is going on? To understand what God's up to with the priests, you need a bit of the basics of the larger section, so I want to zoom out just a little bit and offer you a breakdown of the surrounding narrative, all of which takes place on Mount Sinai. We have now entered a portion of Exodus, all of which happens when a cloud descends on Mount Sinai and through which God speaks to Moses face to face with a friend. So all of this is eavesdropping on just one single conversation between God and Moses. Chapters 25 through 27 are all instructions about the, the architecture of the tabernacle. And then chapter 28, where we just read from, is about the priest's clothing and what the people running the tabernacle are supposed to wear to work. Chapter 29 is instructions for the priest's ceremony and their sacrifices. 30 through 31 are all about all the other stuff that goes in the tabernacle, about who's supposed to build it, and oh, make sure you stop the construction on the Sabbath. And the remainder of Exodus after chapter 31 is mostly just a retelling of that conversation. What we first read in dialogue between God and Moses, we then read through narrative as what God tells Moses gets lived and tragically as it doesn't get lived. Act two, I think, is easier to wrap our heads around if we see it not just as a linear narrative, but as a picture, more something like a target. If you were to read the uh, Exodus scroll through a Hebrew imagination, it would sound and look a little bit more like this. Now, we're going to get into this more in just a few weeks, but the tabernacle itself is a representation of Eden. God is not giving Moses blueprints for an ornate building, uh, but symbolically, he's giving Moses blueprints for heaven on earth, for a place where God will dwell among his people just as he did at first. But the literary center of the whole thing, uh, the literary center of God's instructions to Moses is not about the tabernacle architecture, but about the priest's 
fashion. The literary center is a tribe of priests beginning with Moses' brother Aaron who will be set apart from the people to play a particular role between God and the people. The priests, and more specifically the priestly garments, is the bullseye of the second liberation journey in Exodus. So up for today is the lengthy details of the priest's clothing or what I would like to call, what should I wear for the renewal of the world? So we're gonna drop in on four major scenes within the biblical story. This is gonna be one of those teachings where we take a theme of the Bible and we trace it all the way from Genesis to Revelation. So if you'd like to follow along with me in your Bible, please get ready to do some flipping. We're gonna go through these four stops, creation, promise, fulfillment, and renewal. Here we go, scene one, creation. The first two items listed in the priest's clothing is an ephod, which is an undergarment, which is made with gold, and then two onyx stones, which are set in gold, should be on the shoulders, which are engraved with the names of Israel's 12 tribes. This introduces a pattern that each element of the priest's garments continue to follow, that uh, the, the person wearing the priestly garments belongs equally to God and to the people. Next we read there's a turban, uh, which is like a crown that says holy, so the priest belongs to God. And there's a chess piece with the name of all of Israel's 12 tribes, the priest belongs to the people. So this clothing, it's less of an outfit and it's more of an identity. The priest is set apart as, uh, from the people as someone who belongs to God, but equally as someone who belongs to the people, who comes before God on behalf of all of the people. That's the gist. But why doesn't God just give Moses the gist? I mean, why does God need to go into all these details about the source materials and the design of the priest's shirt? Why is God, who is so famously vague in so many parts of the scriptures and experientially so painfully detailed and thorough here? Well, just a quick tip for reading the Bible. Whenever you come across something in scripture that seems inconsequential or superfluous, something you're pretty sure a a careful editor would have trimmed as fat, pay attention because there is no fat to trim in the biblical story. Every syllable is rich with meaning linking to different parts. And because right here, God is giving Moses not sketches for a fashion show, but blueprints for heaven on earth for the way back into Eden, or said more accurately, for the way to bring heaven to earth. And that brings us back to the Bible's first page, Genesis chapter two. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden from where From there, it's separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Now, do you notice that the materials named first in the priest's clothing are also the elements named first in the Garden of Eden? The materials that God instructs uh, to be used to make the priest's clothing are symbolic of Eden. In fact, there is not a single mention of onyx in the whole of the Hebrew Bible between this description of Eden and God's conversation with Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, This is the author of Exodus again linking his story back to the creation story. So we're not reading fashion tabloids. 
God is letting Moses in on how he'll restore all that was lost in the beginning, of how he will bring heaven to earth to redeem the consequences of sin. Gold is the most precious metal in the biblical imagination, and in the defining encounter in Act 1 in the burning bush, Yahweh tells Moses that he will give Israel such favor that as they leave Egypt, the Egyptian people will begin to voluntarily give their gold to the Israelites to carry with them. And then in chapter 12 of Exodus, it happens exactly like Yahweh said it would. So to trace the thread, materials from Eden are plundered from Egypt, and then they are worn by the priests. What is the story here? God will mercifully win back all that his people have forfeited by a misuse of the freedom he gave them in the garden. The author of Exodus is structuring his narrative as a recreation of Eden. All of these finer points and details are a recreation, a redemptive work happening right in the midst of a sin-corrupted world. And the main event at the literary center of it all is a person, a human being, who will symbolically re enter Eden on behalf of the many. The bullseye at the target of the author's drawing is a human re-entering Eden on behalf of all the people. Scene two, promise. So this whole section about tabernacles and priests, it begins with the promise in Exodus 25. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. So here's the promise. Just like I dwelt with you in Eden, I will dwell with you again. I will redeem all that was lost. That brings us from the dress code to the occasion, from the priest's clothing to the priest's ceremony. See, once a year, the high priest and only the high priest is meant to symbolically re-enter Eden, which is called the Holy of Holies in the temple. That's how it's symbolized, or in the tabernacle. Passing through the tabernacle gates by a blood sacrifice of an animal to serve as an intercessor or a bridge cutting a path by which God's forgiveness can flow back to all the people. So we've got the dress code. That's the ceremony. Yahweh says, here's how you can live in the freedom that I've won for you. Rehearse a story where one re-enters Eden on behalf of all by sacrifice and forgiveness will flow back to all the people. This promise isn't given in a narrative like a book, it's given through a symbol, a person playing a role. We live in a world today where writing is probably the broadest and most long-lasting form of communication. Right? Books outlive their authors and works of writing, whether it be a musical piece or a poem or classic literature, arguably outlive all other direct mediums of communication. But the biblical world was one of an oral culture and a mostly illiterate society. And so a story had to be symbolized and practiced in order to be passed most broadly and passed through generations. And so in the world into which God is speaking, all of these elaborate instructions about architecture and fashion and ceremony are the most logical and resilient way to make a promise that you intend to be remembered broadly and remembered across generations over a long period of time. 
Then finally, Moses comes back down from this defining encounter with God that is going to unfold the second deep inner liberation journey in the book of Exodus. And Aaron is selected by Yahweh to play the lead. Aaron, Moses' brother, is the one that God says is going to be the first priest and all of his descendants after him will be a tribe of priests. Moses has had this defining encounter with God, so defining that his face is literally carrying an afterglow of the presence of God as he makes his way down the mountain. And Aaron, who's been more Robin to Moses' Batman to this point in the story, is graciously called to live at the very bullseye of God's redemption plan. And what does Moses discover when he gets to the bottom of the mountain? When a famous scene of tragic irony. While Moses was up meeting with God, Aaron was leading the people in the construction of a false god. Aaron has built an idol. And he's built an idol out of what? Gold. A golden calf. The materials that were in Eden and then plundered from Egypt that were meant to become garments that Aaron himself and his descendants would wear have been formed instead into a false god. The life that God won back for his people from that snake pharaoh, pun intended, isn't being used for liberation but for idolatry, for the worship of a created thing rather than the creator. What a colossal failure. Now, I need to slow down right here because this is the turn in the story that we hold on to as we move forward. Aaron is supposed to be covered in all sorts of glittery, glowing things, right? And yet he's using those very materials meant to make his clothes, to make a false god uh, for the people to worship. Moses, who saves the day uh, from this whole fiasco, has no glittery, glowing things to wear, and yet his face is glowing even as he encounters the people. And so, interesting plot twist here, Aaron and all his descendants after him, they don't get the role stripped away from them by God. They still get to play the part, but it's Moses, not Aaron, who's actually acting as a priest for the people. What do you mean? Well, what does a priest do? A priest goes before God on behalf of all the people. And that's exactly what happens next. Moses goes back up the mountain for a second encounter with God, which is somehow even better than the first. And through Moses, forgiveness then flows back to all the people, even Aaron. Aaron, who in the interest of fairness has high moments and low moments in the Exodus story, just like Moses does. Aaron gets to wear the robes and lead the ceremonies, but it's Moses who's really filling the role on behalf of the people. Aaron is more like a symbol, and Moses is closer to the real thing. How are we doing? Are you guys tracking with this? You hanging with me? I know this is biblically dense. I know a few of you are pining for Gavin Bennett as a deer pants for water, okay? <laughs> I know we've been talking about the thread used to sew the priest's shirt, but hang in there because right here is where this goes from a wordy wardrobe description to one of the most stinging burns ever to roll off the lips of Jesus. Okay, scene three, fulfillment. So the promise God made to Israel, which was then remembered through this participatory ceremony throughout Old Testament history, is fulfilled 
in Jesus. I'm going to pick up from there in Matthew chapter 26. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So this is the end of Jesus's life that we've dropped in on. It's his very final night, in fact. And he was brought to trial before the high priest, Caiaphas. And this isn't their first run-in. Back in John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and for the priest, that was the last straw. He had been growing increasingly unpopular among the priests throughout his ministry. He was stealing all their thunder, but refusing to play by any of their rules. He was acting like a priest, but he didn't have any of the credentials. And so the priests call this council meeting. What are we accomplishing, they ask. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. He did not know this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. Caiaphas involuntarily prophesied. He unintentionally unfolded God's redemption plan, not by prayer as Moses did on the mountain, but by accident. Back to the courtroom, verse 63. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So right here in the climactic line of dialogue, in the climactic scene of Jesus' life to this point, Matthew doesn't call Caiaphas by his name. He calls him by his title. Now Matthew is Jewish, and his gospel was written primarily with a Jewish audience in mind. He knows what he's doing. This is a tell. It's a cue to the reader to question, or to read this question in light, not of the man Caiaphas, but of the role high priest. In the original language, the question reads, tell us if you are the Christ. Now this, the English Messiah or Christ, it is a term meaning anointed one. It's a term for the fulfiller of the Exodus promise an Old Testament term that this whole ceremony the high priest would lead points to. Once a year, the high priest is to re-enter Eden as a bridge between God and the people and by way of sacrifice, cut a path by which God's forgiveness can flow back to the people. That's not just a ceremony. It is a living promise that's awaiting fulfillment, awaiting the anointed one who would come as the reality of whom the high priest is merely just a symbol. I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the anointed one. Caiaphas' words echo of a previous scene. Rewind just a little bit in Matthew's story to chapter 16, and Jesus asked the disciples the very question that Caiaphas would ask him in the courtroom. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the anointed one, the son of the living God. Peter says to Jesus, you're the anointed one, you're the high priest, the real high priest, the one whom all of the other high priests have merely been a symbol of. And Jesus calls that realization blessing given by God himself. Back to the courtroom. 
I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the anointed one. In the Torah, the first person to ever be called anointed one is the high priest. In a sense, Caiaphas is asking Jesus, do you think you've got my job, my status, my position? Do you think you can wear my robes? It's both a cosmic question and a deeply personal one. A question that reaches all the way back across the biblical arc and a question that reaches all the way down into Caiaphas' sense of self and to the self that he has made himself into, into all that he has accomplished on his own. There would definitely be defensiveness in Caiaphas' question. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. These words are not original to Jesus. He is quoting Daniel chapter 7, which is a passage about a person who ascends into the heavens to sit at the right hand of God as a priestly image of a representative who goes before God on our behalf to create a way for forgiveness to flow back to all of God's people. It is the fulfillment of the ceremony that the high priest was filling. It's the fulfillment to which the symbol pointed. Jesus is talking to Caiaphas, a priest who would have had Daniel memorized. And he's not just any priest. He's accomplished enough to be named high priest. Jesus is telling Caiaphas, in Caiaphas' own language, I'm the real thing. You're just a symbol. Remember Moses and Aaron? Moses up on the mountain getting a revelation from God on behalf of the people. Aaron down at the base building an idol. Moses acting like a priest, Aaron acting like the furthest thing from a priest, but he's still going to put these robes on and become a symbol of what God will do among his people. Don't you see it? Don't you see it? That's Caiaphas. Jesus is the one acting like a priest. In scene after scene after scene, it's Jesus who's up on the mountain in the presence of the Father on behalf of the people. And it's Jesus who descends the mountain to show the heart of the Father to the people. It's Jesus who's forgiving, Jesus who's blessing, Jesus who's opening eyes, Jesus who's freeing captives, Jesus who's proclaiming good news, Jesus who is ready to lay down his very life that the forgiveness of the Father might flow back to you and me. Aaron made the golden calf because he feared the people. He craved popular opinion. And in numerous scenes, it's the priests who crave status and appearance. The priests who assimilate to popular opinion and buddy up with power. It's the priests who surround themselves with the elite and forget the poor. Don't you see it, friends? Sure, Caiaphas has the robes on. Yahweh still allows him to play the part, but Jesus is the real high priest here. Jesus is Daniel's seven's uh, vision. Jesus is Daniel's seven quote is a shorthand way of saying, you're Aaron and I'm the new and better Moses. The one to whom Moses' best moment, his literal mountaintop experience merely pointed to. You, Caiaphas, are a symbol of me. 
I am the great fulfillment to the promise that you have been rehearsing. You are a symbol of what I'm about to go and do, about what you're about to watch me go and do. And when you nail me to that cross and put me in that empty tomb, I am going through the cloud to the right hand of God. I am building a bridge. I am the anointed one. And on the third day, you'll know exactly who I am. The very next Verse, then the high priest tore his clothes. In response to Jesus, Caiaphas tears his clothes. Could the symbolism be any richer? Is this blowing anyone else's mind or am I completely alone here? The clothing that's less an outfit and more an identity, he tears it off because the symbol must make way for the real thing. At the council meeting, Caiaphas involuntarily prophesied through what he said. In the courtroom, Caiaphas involuntarily prophesied through what he tore off. He tears off an identity that didn't belong to him because the one that it rightly belongs to has shown up. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, anointed one. Who hit you? Don't you see it? All this for make sure you get some onyx stones for the shoulder pieces? Yeah. And then Jesus carried out the act that only he was worthy to carry out. He goes to the cross, redeeming our wrongs and paying its wage. And through Jesus, forgiveness flows back to all the people, even to Caiaphas, if he'll fall down on his knees and accept it. Jesus marched right back into Eden through the sacrifice, not of a lamb, but of his own blood. He punctured a hole in that thick black curtain that fell like an anvil in response to sin. A hole which allows us to see and yes, to climb into a paradise that will never end, but maybe even more profoundly, a hole that allows paradise to wash back into this world like heaven leaking on earth until every square inch is saturated. That's the story. That's the story. So what does it mean? Well, Hebrews says it means, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy to find grace in our time of need. Scene four, renewal. I recently read Bono's memoir. To be honest, I'm kind of surprised I picked it up. I've never been particularly into you 2 I mean, it's one thing to go by Bono, but it just has always been so hard for me to take seriously a grown man asking people to call him the edge. 
But I was so struck by this one part of the book that I've been listening to Joshua Tree like it was the soundtrack of my adolescence. And, and the bit that got me was that early on in the story, somewhere around his 20s, Bono wrote, I can't change the world, but I can change the world inside of me. But then later, sometime in midlife, he turned that around and said, I can change the world, but I can't change the world inside of me. And he divides his life by those two statements. There are two liberation journeys in Exodus, remember? The first is to get Israel out of slavery, and the second is to get slavery out of Israel. Now, Bono has, uh, is a man who has spent his fame on the least of these. He's one of the most successful rock stars of the last century and one of the most outspoken activists. He wrote Where the Streets Have No Name from a sub-Saharan African village where he was beholding global poverty, asking for God's kingdom to come. He used his voice on stage and in media interviews and in meeting rooms with politicians to contend for an end to global poverty, all to say we're talking about someone who's familiar with renewal, who's familiar with the way that heaven washes backward into this world through Jesus. And still he says the second liberation, the world inside of me liberation, that's the real journey. And I can identify with that. In my short life so far, I've gotten to work with the addicted, the imprisoned, the impoverished, the orphaned, the houseless, and the widow. Through trial and error, I've done the best I can to fight for the renewal of the world with this one life that I've got, but the battles that have and continue to wrestle me to the ground are the internal ones. The thought patterns and habits that I struggle to correct, the way that I respond to stress, the propensity for me to live in the future but never in the present, the parts of my marriage and my parenting and my closest friendships that I can't seem to get right, the past pain that still informs my present, the misaligned priorities that I can't seem to hold in right order, and the parts of me that I expend so much energy keeping hidden. I can change the world but I can't change the world inside of me. Yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. There are two liberation journeys in Exodus because there are two liberation journeys in all of us. There's how to get free. That's receiving the victory that Jesus won for us on the cross. And then there's how to live free, how the world inside of me comes into perfect alignment with that victory of Jesus's. And the second journey, internal freedom, it tends to be longer and less predictable than the first. The climactic moments are fewer and further between. It's a whole lot less linear, and there's plenty of twists and turns and setbacks. In the long second journey, we all tend to get stuck, to have certain parts of our lives that we convince ourselves that God's grace can't or just won't touch this side of eternity. Parts of us we think won't get transformed or won't get transformed altogether anyway a relationship that we just can't seem to fix despite our best intentions, or a thought pattern that we can't order, a behavior that we don't want but also feel powerless to stop, a past event that we can't seem to outrun, an obsession with some lesser God, popularity or pleasure or power, a secret that we hide, a resentment that we hold, something that I can't forgive you for or something I can't forgive myself for. 
So how does Jesus, our great high priest, relate to our second journey? What is the posture of his heart toward us as we stumble and twist and turn and take two steps back and then three steps forward? Well, Hebrews says it starts with empathy. And the English empathize in this passage. It's the Greek sympatheo, which literally means to co-suffer. The difference between pity and empathy is proximity. Witnessing suffering from a distance, it creates pity, right? A statistic, a distressing news report. According to World Vision, as of this very moment, 19% of the world lives in poverty and two-thirds of those people are children. The New York Times published an article this week about the crisis of fentanyl use in our city. That kind of information will make you feel something. But if you were to spend a week with a sub-Saharan African family of five living in extreme poverty, if you were to learn their names and the little quirks of their personalities, if you were to laugh and play with their children and help them do the dishes at night, or if your daughter was one of those fentanyl users, and if you had ever walked the streets of our city checking the intake at different shelters hoping to find her, if you had ever seen her, someone you love in the haze of a high that deadly, Well, that would make you feel something much deeper. It would make it nearly impossible not to act on what you feel. Pity is distant and it rarely transforms into action. Empathy is proximate and it demands action. Jesus is the living embodiment of a God who is unwilling to stop at pity. That's his heart towards you and me. He has drawn nearest us in our pain, drawn tenaciously to you, not just in your competencies, but especially in the cracks within you. Dane Ortland says, in our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own, even though it isn't. Not that his invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. His love is a love that cannot be held back when he sees in people, his people in pain. So how does the great high priest relate to us on the long second liberation journey? Hebrews goes on to say solidarity. His pursuing love emerges from the fact that he's been tempted in every way as we are and yet did not sin. The one who has suffered like you've suffered is the greatest comfort in the midst of your pain. Ask a mother who's lost a child who comforted her most as she weathered the storm of her own loss, or a friend who recently got laid off, or an alcoholic who is dragging his or her feet through the early days of recovery, or just the 40-something who finally cried uncle and started seeing a therapist because this just isn't working anymore. There is no comfort like the one who has walked the path that I'm on. And Jesus is unique among every other conception of God because Jesus and only Jesus shows us a God who is not content to offer advice from a safe distance or to offer advice to those who have made a pilgrimage to his lofty throne, but instead has made a pilgrimage to meet us on our level. He shares in our pain. He takes on our condition, yet he did not sin. And that is our hope. That is our only hope that the one who is most full of empathetic love is also equally full of healing power. And this is what makes Jesus the anointed one, the great high priest to whom all the others were merely a veiled image pointing to. 
The Quaker missionary Thomas Kelly, in his brilliant little book, A Testament of Devotion, he breaks down our spiritual formation into four stages. And there's a whole lot to gain from his four stages. But what I want to draw your attention to today, through these four stages, if you throw them up there, what I want to draw your attention to today is that the, the first three that he names all put us in the driver's seat. We are the active agent in our own formation, cultivating a vision of the self, choosing to begin, beginning again when we stumble and fail. We are the active agent, and yet the fourth stage puts the agency in the hands of another. Let life be willed through you. In Kelly's own words, he writes, don't grit your teeth and clench your fists and say, I will, I will, relax. Take hands off. Submit yourselves to God. Let life be willed through you. And the Trappist monk Thomas Merton says something strikingly similar to this. He writes of two levels of spiritual formation. First is the active work that we do that addresses the conscious and surface level attachments of our lives, the obvious patterns that we and probably everyone else sees. And he says that we let go of these when you pray and suffer and hang on and give things up and sweat. It's a fair, if uninspiring, take on what it means to practice the way of Jesus, of Kelly's first three stages. But then Merton talks about the deeper patterns within us, the, the world inside of me, second journey kind of freedom, and his tone changes. He writes, we need to leave the initiative in the hands of God working in our souls, either directly or through others. You see, the deepest kind of freedom both of these saints suggest comes not from warring against my faults, but from surrender to the great high priest who can empathize with my weaknesses. And I see that in the biblical story. I mean, for years, Peter was active in his own formation. He was handing out the loaves and fish. He was walking on water. He was speaking up. He was formed by all of that practice, but he was formed deepest when he finally sat still next to a charcoal fire and locked eyes with the great high priest who loved him, not in his competencies, but in his failure. Or look at Jesus himself, renewing the world at every turn of the page, but his most powerful renewal came through his surrender. And it wasn't surrender to Caiaphas or to Rome, but surrender to the Father. On the cross, Jesus prayed, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the deepest kind of freedom comes when we learn to pray the same kind of prayer. We are a people of practice. We believe the way of Jesus is both a life and a lifestyle, but our hope rests not on our practice, but on his grace. And so I want to close with the very question that we started with. What should I wear? It's more a sacred question than it sounded like at first. It's even a biblical one. The Apostle Paul in a number of his letters borrows this theme of the priest's clothing as a metaphor for the spiritual life. In Romans 13, we read, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. 
That sentiment is repeated in both Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, only there it's expounded on a bit further into the language of a taking off and putting on, like changing clothes, a theme that ties all the way back to the priestly garments of Exodus. Surrender is active in the spiritual life, not passive, because it involves an intentional stripping away, a taking off. Caiaphas lived in the days when God himself walked to the earth. He stood questioning the God who came to bring him life and life to the full, but to receive that life. That meant taking off his robes. It meant taking off the self that he had made himself into apart from God's help. It meant the risk of losing his life that he might find it. And in the old I guess a touch cheesy, but I think incredibly profound children's book, Hope for Flowers, Paula Trina imagines this conversation between two caterpillars. But how do you become one, she asked. You must want to fly so much that you're willing to give up being a caterpillar, he said. You mean to die, asked Yellow. Yes and no, he answered. What looks like you will die, but what's really you will still live. You see, surrender means bringing God all the ways I've found of living in this world that allow me to cope, but only grace allows me to transform. Surrender means being painfully honest with who I am and trusting that God is strong enough, good enough, and interested enough to work within me from the inside out to produce the life in me that I cannot seem to produce within myself. The victory has been won. The deceiver's only trick left is to convince you that the great high priest's work does not apply to you or doesn't apply to this. To convince you that there's some failure in your life that is colossal enough that it is outside of his forgiveness. Or to convince you that there's a pattern that is deeply ingrained or, or it's got its talons into your personality enough that it's beyond his transformation. Or to convince you that there's a relationship in your life that is so complicated and knotted up that he can't untangle it. To convince you that there's a definition of you in the mind of the creator that is something less than unconditional love. The victory's been won. The deceiver's only trick left is to convince you that the great high priest's work doesn't apply to you or doesn't apply to this. Jesus, he is the great high priest who has made a way back into Eden and maybe even more profoundly has made a way for Eden to come into earth, to come into you even now. What should I wear for the renewal of the world? Put on Christ. And just like the priest's robes, that's less an outfit and more an identity.